because of our condition before God. You know the big story of the Bible. God created us for good and for his glory because of sin, Adam's, that was passed on to all of us and our human family connection. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not just injured by Adam, we are damaged by choice. You can argue that it's not fair that Adam sinned and therefore I'm somehow accountable as a member of the human race, but the bottom line is his sin affected you and your sin validates your connection with him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is holy and just. He deserves honor and glory. And in our fallen condition, the damage of rebellion, both his, Adam's, and ours as a part of the human family, we are separated from God. And the Bible says, while we were yet enemies of God, God demonstrated his love for us. An enemy is an overt adversary. You may not realize it, but if you are not in Christ, you're without God and without hope in the world. Because the Bible, which you hold and we will read today, is the revelation of reality. It isn't just a religious book. It's a revelation from the creator of everything to help you understand the way things are that otherwise you could not understand without him revealing it. Who in the world is going to figure out how the world works without the benefit of God? You can say, I know there is a higher power, there's a divine designer, but you can't conclude that he is a personal God who loved us and gave his only son for us. Nor could you conclude that the way to be reconciled with God, that is to be restored to him relationally, to enter into a family fellowship with him, that it would be by grace, unmerited favor, through faith, reliance on God alone, not your work, but his, and like a gift, you receive a forgiveness that you don't deserve. Who in the world would conclude that's the way God would choose to restore what was broken, damaged, and adversarial, who would have thought that that would be the solution of God, the good news we call the gospel? The gospel's good news because it gives you the potential, by faith, believing in God's work, not your work, receiving His forgiveness by grace as an unmerited gift. Salvation, the gospel, by faith in Jesus Christ, you get to be released from the consequence of your sin, not just now, but forever. And as a consequence of that great act of God, his work, not yours, you enjoy what is called eternal life, which, by the way, is not just the length of it, it's the kind of it. It's the life of God. You can have it all, you can do it all, and not have the life of God, which is available and as a gift to all who believe. You can have nothing at all and have everything if you have the life of God called eternal life. There is a life that is truly life. And I pray that you have it. And if you have it, you ought to remember today with joy and soberness, what it cost to get it. Because the Lord's Supper is the remembrance that Jesus paid a debt you couldn't pay. So you could have a life you couldn't earn. Can you say amen to that?
Now what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 is you don't go into that experience of partaking of the Lord's Supper, which memorializes His work. You don't do that lightly. You do that seriously. And there's two ways you do it. By appreciation. I remember and I'm so grateful. And by examination. Because the purpose of the Lord's table is not just to remember Him. It is to reflect on you. What is it in my life that's incongruous with what Jesus Christ did for me? Personal examination is critical to the Lord's table. And the goal is not to pass the cup or to pass the bread and not partake. It's better to pass it and not partake of it if you're not willing to express proper appreciation as well as do a personal examination and deal with what is inconsistent. It would be better to pass it. But that's not the purpose. I watch people do it. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to deal with it so you don't have to pass it, you can partake of it. You don't win an award for passing something because you're unwilling to deal with what is required to partake of it. So, the Lord's table today. It's a gift, it's a privilege, and it's an opportunity. And I hope you'll prepare your heart for it. All right, we're in James chapter 2. We're talking about the work that justifies faith. The faith that saves, genuine faith. The most important confidence you can have, the most important understanding you can enjoy is what does it take to have the faith that saves? We just talked about the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith alone, not of works. You don't boast about it because God did it. How do you know you have such faith? James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, is calling out to believers who have been dispersed like seed due to persecution. Here is the conduct. Here is the lifestyle. Here are the convictions that define true faith. And true faith is not just a claim. It's not even just things you believe. True faith involves characteristics that validate it. We've learned in chapter 2, verse 14, that there's a kind of faith. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works. Can that faith save him? There's a kind of claim that's faith that's just words. There's no work. There's no work. There's no charitable. There's no expression of concern or kindness for people who are in need. You simply say, hey, I hate that for you. Be warm and be filled. That's not living faith. That's not genuine faith. That has no use as it relates to salvation. And then we saw in verse 18, that your faith needs to show the works that are demonstrated beyond what truth convictions you have. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. Some people believe their faith is in their truth convictions. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe in shudder. We talked about demon theology. Demons don't miss a mark at all when it relates to the reality of God, who God is, and the way the world works. They just hate God instead of love God. 
Because true salvation, saving faith, is more than words and it's more than truth convictions. Saving faith expresses itself on how you truly love people and how you truly love God. Not just what you know about God. Verse 20, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, this person who is prone to deception, that faith without works is useless, has no value? So you can claim it and not have it. You can believe the right stuff and not have it. Because true faith is validated faith. It's justified. You're justified by faith. You're declared righteous by God. It's reckoned to you as righteousness when you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that claim of faith in that is justified by your work. Faith and works are like the light and heat of a candle. They cannot be separated. The main goal of the Apostle Paul is to teach that the true meaning of justification by faith alone, or how a person is saved, is without the works of the law. No human merit work secures favor with God, and the purpose of James is to teach how to discern the faith that is genuine. The faith that distinguishes itself as living and saving faith. Someone has said, if God gives you St. Paul's faith, faith alone in the work of God, you will soon have St. James' works. Works that validate your claims of faith. To summarize, James is not teaching that salvation is by faith plus works, but he is teaching that a faith that truly saves really has good works. Verse 21, we talked about it last week, was not Abraham. He's going to give two examples, two individuals that he is going to highlight as examples of how saving faith works. Two validating evidences of saving faith. Two people, one at the top of the social food chain, Abraham, exalted father, father of the multitudes and the nations a superior saint in the eyes of the recipients of this letter, a man, a patriarch. I'm going to use his example, and I'm also going to use the example of the lowliest sinner, Rahab the harlot. I'm going to identify common ground with both of them. They both had work that justified the claims of their faith. They had validating evidence as to the reality of the faith at work in them. Rhetorical question, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Justified means validation, proven. Justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar. Now we looked at this extensively last week. Real faith if you have it, necessarily validates itself. And it validates itself in the way, in part, that it was validated in Abraham because saving faith has put God first no matter what faith. My only son, I want you to sacrifice him as a worship offering to me. 
God, I choose you over everything else, including my son faith. It is a put God's, God first faith, and listen, and it believes God no matter what faith. Because Hebrews 11 says, even if I do sacrifice him, you have the power to resurrect him. Abraham is an example of saving faith because real faith is proven when you obey and trust God when you're severely tested. Real faith is validated by, put, by obeying God and putting God ahead of any relationship. The question that begs to be asked then, do you have such faith? And how do you measure that claim? Well, in part by evaluating God's status compared to everybody else's in your human sphere of relationship. Head of my wife, head of my children, head of my friends, head of my career. Put God first faith, and real faith is manifested, therefore, according to this text, verse 23. Scripture was fulfilled, that is, it was confirmed when it says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, his act validated in real time, confirmed it as true when he was willing to offer Isaac, verse 23, and he was called, and I spent some time on this, he was called the friend of God. Friend of God means there's mutual trust, respect, and confidence between both parties. Moses was considered the friend of God, and God was willing to speak to Moses as a friend face to face. There's an intimacy in genuine faith. There's a high trust in God from the worshiper to the one worthy of being worshipped. And there is a trust from God to the one who is worshipping because in real time God has watched Abraham choose God over everything else. Real faith is manifest and fulfilled in first love faith and faithful and faith-filled obedience. And that necessarily results in real and intimate friendship with God. Now, verse 22. You see that faith, this is a reference to Abraham offering Isaac, you see, watch this, that faith was working with his works. And as a result of this faith working, this fitness faith exercise, as a result of that, as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Let me give you a statement that verse 22 highlights, and you ought to own this. Because genuine faith is not just validated by genuine work. Genuine faith that works matures. Saving faith is proven, here's the statement, verse 22, saving faith is proven and perfected when it is working. So I say it, and then when I manifest it, it's proven. It's validated. When I put God first, when I believe big things about God, no matter what God is asking, I'm validating that my confidence in God is legitimate. I trust Him. I really trust it. Not with just my lips, but with my life. And when I am living out that work of faith, it matures my faith. 
My faith goes from wherever it is to where it should go. Faith is an exercise when it's working that enables you to grow. You're in the faith fitness gym. Saving faith is proven and perfected when it is working. And every time you exercise it, faith was working with his works. Do you hear it? Faith was working with his works. It's being exercised. You grow in it. And as a result of the works, the outworking of his faith, his faith was, the word perfected means matured. So saving faith works, and when saving faith works, it is perfected. It's matured. Let me give you an example of this. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 17. Because I'm a, I, uh, I found an example that validates this. I am going to get to Rahab, I promise. But I don't want to skip perfecting faith by the exercise of faith. Here's something you need to know. Wherever your faith is, it needs to mature. And it matures through trials when you exercise faith in God's work in difficulty. Hard times create opportunities for good outcomes. It's a good God through hard things that is producing a good outcome. And if you cooperate with God, your faith will grow. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials because you know that the trying of your faith, the testing of your faith works perseverance. Perseverance is strength. Faith is strength. And the net effect of that is that you can be whole, complete, lacking in nothing. So let this deal, this fitness exercise called a trial, have its perfect work. Let it do what it's designed by God to. If you're in trouble today, it is a providence, purposeful exercise designed to grow your faith. Cooperate with God. Get wisdom from God. Stay in it. Don't try to escape from it. Glory in it. Don't complain about it. It's a master trainer doing a work of faith in your life. It's growing your faith. It's perfecting your faith. Every time you exercise your faith, you mature it. Because faith is working with the work. It's growing. Here's an example of that. This is uh, Genesis 17. The subject is Sarai, who will become Sarah. And I just want you to feel the flavor of growth in Sarai's life. God said to Abraham, verse 15, Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai... The word means princess. Abraham's wife, Sarai, is princess. Then God said to Sarai, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah. You're not going to call her princess anymore. You're going to call her Sarah. We're going to add one letter to her name. And she's going to go from your princess to my princess. Because that's what Sarah means, my princess. She shall be called Sarah, my princess. I will bless her. Here's why. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I, God, I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. 
going from your princess to my princess because out of her, the world is going to be blessed because of me because I'm going to give her a son. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and did what? He laughed. What kind of laugh? He said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Anybody want to guess what kind of laughter that was? Doubt. You've got to be kidding laughter. There is no way. That kind of laughter. So Abraham says to God, clearly it can't be the way it's normally done. I'm too old and so is she. Verse 18, and Abraham said to God, oh, oh that Ishmael might live before you. That was the son by the handmaid Hagar. So it's not going to come from Sarah, it's going to come from Hagar, that son, and may he live before you as an honorable man. Verse 19, but God said no, but Sarah, my princess, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Anybody know what Isaac means? He laughs. Abraham laughed the laugh of doubt and denial, but he's going to have a son, and God goes, you know what his name's going to be? He laughs. Now turn over with me to chapter 18, verse 9. God's talking to Abraham, going to tell him what he's about to do after Abraham hosts the messengers of God and the Lord himself. Verse 9, Then they said to him, these visitors to Abraham, before Sodom and Gomorrah and the doom of it. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He, the messenger who is the Lord himself, he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. We call that eavesdropping. He's paying attention. And watch this. Now Abraham said, now Abraham rather is a commentary. This is a natural reality. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was what? Past childbearing. Physically, naturally, no way, no how. So what did Sarah do? Verse 12. She did what Abraham did. She laughed. She laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Now what kind of laugh was this? Just like her husband's. Doubt and disbelief. You've got to be kidding. Verse 14. Here's the reality of realities, and the reality of realities has nothing to do with simple natural realities. God says, is anything too difficult for the Lord, Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah, my princess, will have a son. Verse 15. Oh, I skipped 13, didn't I? Let me not do that. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, I shall indeed bear a child when I am so old? 
verse 15, God asks that question, then he makes the claim, nothing's too hard for him, this is really going to happen. Verse 15, Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And God said, no, but you did laugh. Does anybody besides me get the idea that laugh is a deal in this passage? Abraham laughs out of disbelief and doubt. Sarah laughs out of disbelief and doubt. She's looking at natural circumstances. Bottom line, and and then when confronted, she denies it. Why? She's afraid. Because her faith is a small faith. Now go over to Hebrews chapter 11. This is the chapter on faith. What it is. Why it's required. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And let me give you the grocery list of examples that validate the fact that faith is the operative ingredient for pleasing God and doing great things on behalf of God. That's what this chapter is about. I want you to look at verse 11. Hebrews 11, verse 11. Here's inspirational commentary on Sarah. The princess who became my princess. The one who laughed out of doubt and disbelief. The one who denied it because she was afraid when confronted about it. Her weak faith. Verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. Beyond the proper time of life. Here's the reason why. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Her miraculous experience, the fulfillment of God's promise, is attached to what reality? Her faith. Somewhere between there's no way, no how, this girl's faith grew to the point where her faith was the reason Her faith in God, the one who fulfills, considered him faithful, who had promised, she was able to conceive. Her faith went from little faith, disbelief, and doubt laughter, to I believe. Between the time she was told and heard eavesdropping, somewhere in there her faith grew. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 18, or 21, rather. 21. And by the way, as you're turning there, Isaac was one of the most popular names at the turn of the century, the 1900s. It became one of the least popular names by the latter part of the 1900s, because Harry took over. (laughs) Not too long ago, it had elevated up to number 28 out of the top 100. Isaac, he laughs. Itzhak, the one who causes laughter, the one who provokes it, the one who is the focus of it, he laughs. Um, 
I was telling Isaac, or excuse me, uh, Nathan, who's going to preach for us tonight, his son is Isaac, and I asked him and Beth why they named their son that, because it wasn't so very popular. What is the connection? He just liked the name. I said, do you know what the name means? He laughs. Yes, he does. He laughs. It's a good name. It fell out of popularity. Thanks for bringing it back, because Isaac is a freshman at college now, so they started a trend, because it is coming back. Genesis 21. Then the Lord took note of Sarah. You see it? Chapter 21, verse 1. I really do want you to track with me. I think these words matter. Then the Lord took note of Sarah. I wonder what he took note of. I wonder if it's the faith that wasn't and the faith that was. He took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Verse 4, then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Verse 5, now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now watch this, verse 6. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. What kind of laughter is this? This is the laughter of pure joy. This is, God has made laughter. That's her son's name. I don't know if she was looking at him. She's made laughter. And everybody will enter into my joy. My laughter they will share. Verse 7. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, I didn't want to skip through this because I hadn't seen it before, and I'm convinced that perhaps you haven't. But Sarah is an example of little faith growing into greater faith, the kind of belief in a big God despite natural circumstances that causes her to laugh and doubt and disbelief and enjoy the fulfillment of, I can't believe God did this for me. He gave me laughter, the laughter of joy. And I want everybody who knows what God did for me to enter into my joy. He laughs and he provokes laughter because he's the work of God, which is the result of Abraham's faith and my faith. Because your faith needs to grow in order to see the fulfillment of all that's possible in the promises of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Listen to me. And it's impossible to receive anything from God. God is generous, but He grants generous gifts to those who believe big things about a big God, no matter what you see. Because natural realities are real. I'm not living in denial. I'm 100 years old and she's 90. But the issue isn't my natural circumstances. Your test of faith isn't about the balance sheet. Your test of faith is about the God who makes promises. 
and your confidence in Him to provide the wisdom you need, the solution you need, the strength you need for His glory and for your good, which is what? To grow up. Because Christianity is about conforming to the image of Christ. You become a Christian, you become a brother of Christ as a part of His family, and you become, as you exercise your faith, one who looks like Christ, not simply one who identifies with Christ. And if that makes sense, can you say amen? It's my way of validating that you get what God is saying. Because real faith really works, and when it's really working, you're growing. And if you're not trusting, you're not growing. The guy who gets wisdom needs to ask in faith, because without faith, he receives nothing. He can't be like the wave, of the wave of the sea driven and tossed. He must believe that God is good for what God promises. And you grow in faith as you exercise it. Sarah is an example of growing faith. So my question is, where is your faith being tested? What relationship could be like Abraham? Where are you needing to be dependent upon God? Demonstrate saving faith by working your faith that matures your faith. Back to James chapter 2. I told you I'd get to Rahab. Oh, verse 23 in the scripture was fulfilled. We talked about that. It was fulfilled when Abraham manifested his faith. It validated that faith that he was righteous. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified. This is a key verse, verse 24. Here's a claim that confuses people. You see that a man is justified, validated, by works and not by faith. Here are words you, faith alone. It's faith which is alone. It doesn't mean faith alone, like faith alone in God is the basis of justification. Faith which is alone, which means there's no validating works, is useless. Because all faith that truly justifies is not alone. Verse 24. Here's the second, excuse me, verse 25 rather. Here's the second example. In the same way. In the same way as who? Abraham, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? Her faith validated by her work, the work that justified her faith. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? All right, example number two, not a man but a woman. Not a noble person, but an ignoble person. Not a Jew, but a Gentile. A harlot. A sinner. Someone you would not think would enjoy noteworthy reference in the Word of God. She was justified by faith, which was justified by her work. Turn back to Joshua chapter 2, and let's consider the story of Rahab and what justified her faith, the work that justified her faith. I'm going to call her the super sinner, okay? 
Abraham is the superior saint. She is the super sinner. She's the woman, not the man. She's the Gentile, not the Jew. She was the ignoble. He was the noble. And here is the bottom line. I'll state it, and then I'll attempt to show it to you. In the life of Rahab, saving faith believes and works by acting to support the purposes of God and the people of God. She's a validating evidence of what saving faith looks like in real life. And in her case, her faith was represented by the active support, by acting to support the purposes of God and the people of God. Now listen, despite the culture that hates God and the real risk to her life by being loyal to God. I'm going to say it again because I like this statement. Saving faith believes and works by acting to support the purposes of God and the people of God. That's what Rahab did. Despite the culture that hates God and the real risk to her life by being loyal to God. Let me say it a different way. Real faith is proven by God honoring and God supporting actions despite potential unpopular reactions and potentially life risking choices. Saving faith supports the plan and purpose of God despite the risk. Now the reason I want to make that bell clear is because that's the world you're living in. It is not popular or culturally attractive to support the people of God and the work of God. Rahab is an example of somebody who lived a faith that persevered despite high risk and despite a culture that was adversarial to the people of God and the purposes of God. In the same way we saw in James 2, it means Rahab was similar to Abraham in one important aspect, specifically that she, a lowly sinner like Abraham, an exalted father, was shown to be righteous by her actions. What actions did she take? Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua was the leader of Israel appointed by God to follow Moses into the land of promise. This is the book of Joshua, the entrance into the land of abundance. This is the promised land. This is the new generation. Moses is not going to go into the land. The appointed person to lead the people of God into the land is Joshua, the son of Nun. So they're at the threshold. They haven't crossed the River Jordan. They're sitting on the bank on the other side. Jordan is at flood stage. Cities on the other side in Canaan. First city, Jericho. Double-walled city. Powerful place. Verse 1, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab. Her name means someone who blusters. Arrogant, proud, noisy. How's that for a name? It was used in one of the ancient fairy tales, her name for a sea monster. Rahab, that was her name. I don't know if she was a monster. Somebody named her that, but she, her name means someone who blusters. They lodged at the home of Rahab, and the worst thing about her, by way of description, is not her name, but her vocation. She was known by. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. They lodged there. 
and was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king sent word to Rahab, verse 3, saying, Bring out the men. So apparently she engaged them at the gate of the city. People knew where that had occurred and where she lived and where these men had gone to lodge. Apparently she was more than a prostitute. She might have been an innkeeper of some sort. She had lodging. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. They are spies. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. She's talking to the king of Jericho. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Here's the real story. She had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them, the two spies, on the road to the Jordan to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Verse 8, here's a little narrative. Now before they lay down, before she hid them, she came up to them on the roof. So before her work of hiding them, before her work of protecting them, listen to her faith. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard that's faith by hearing, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. We heard about that. We heard about the parting of the sea, which means it was bigger than ankle deep or it wouldn't be a big deal. I heard, we heard about the destruction of these other kings, that you utterly destroyed. Verse 11, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Now watch this faith statement. For the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, personal name, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore please swear to me by the Lord since I have dealt kindly with you. So what she believed motivated her actions, her work. I believe big things about God. I believe in the judgment that God is bringing on the nations. People are afraid. I believe that your God is the maker of everything, the God above and of the earth beneath. And as a result of that faith in God, that truth, I'm asking you, if I deal kindly with you, will you deal kindly with my Father's house and give me a pledge of truth? And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So she believes in judgment. She believes in God. She believes that the people of God are capable of overrunning a double-walled city fortified at the entrance of the land of promise. And she says, as an expression of that conviction and that work or that faith, she says, will you do kindly with me her work? I'll deal kindly with you. 
Verse 14, so the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours. So that's part of the work she will do as, a, as an expression of your faith. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Verse 15, and she let down by a rope through the window. She let them down, rather, by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, go to the hill country so that pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until your pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. And the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you to protect you, care for you, and protect your family. We shall be free from this oath to you, this promise of truth, which you have made us swear, unless, all right, here's the work, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet, thread to the window through which you let us down, and gather to yourself into the house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We shall be free of this oath. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. Now listen to the faith. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, where we saw Sarah, my princess, illustrated as a woman of faith. Verse 31, Hebrews 11. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Rahab's faith was defined by welcoming, active, warmly welcoming, inviting the representatives of God into her home. And her expression of faith was amplified by not just welcoming in, them in, but protecting them, providing for peace for them. She welcomed them in peace or with peace. Rahab the harlot. I want to talk about faith validating works. Not from the best of men, but from the worst of women in this case those who have saving faith, I want to talk about the characteristics of Rahab's saving faith. Saving faith, number one, believes and receives the messengers of God. She saw them, she knew who they were, and she believed their message. There was clearly dialogue between them. And what she said, I know who you are, I know who you represent, and I believe what you're saying and I believe in the God you're representing. She believes and receives. She welcomes in peace. 
And I hinted at this already, but the word for welcome is the word decamai, to welcome with a prefix that amps it up. She warmly welcomed them. She didn't just see them at the gate. She took responsibility for, the, for them at the gate, and she expressed active faith. She expressed a faith that was more than words faith. She invited them into her home despite the fact that she knew there was risk in doing so. Because the second thing is, the saving faith that she reveals is not just welcoming the messengers of God and believing them and their word, but it's protecting the people of God. She was protective. Verse 6, Joshua 2, we read it, she hid them in the stalks. She deceived an evil leader, the king, to partner and obey with the representatives of the righteous leader, our king, Yahweh. Now this makes it an ethical dilemma for many. She's lying. And she's justifying that lying because she's deceiving an evil king in order to honor a righteous one. She's protecting God's people with her words and she's protecting God's people, these messengers, with her actions. Because saving faith is protective of the people of God and the purposes of God. And it covers and protects against those who are intent on destroying the people of God and the work of God. She covers them. She protects them. She deceives the leader in order to protect them, the one who would do harm for them. And saving faith expresses itself by not exposing the people of God, but by protecting the people of God. Now, I just want to make a parenthetical here. With the advent of the Internet, it seems to me that people have a freedom of, of conscience to declare things that are destructive to people of God everywhere, and it inhibits the work of God. They're not protective. They want to expose to the, de to the detriment and damage of the work of God and undermine the people of God. And I just want to caution you about saving faith. It is protective faith. It acknowledges those who promote the purposes of God and it does what it can to protect those persons. Saving faith is a faith that manifests itself in that way. And it is also a faith that obeys. That's the Hebrews 11.31. She did not, uh, did not perish along with those who were disobedient. She was obedient. One commentator puts it this way. She said, she didn't just say, I believe in God. I believe in your God, which is a high view of God. You heard it articulated and then allow the king's men to arrest the spies. Rather, at the risk of her own life, she helped these men to escape and then carefully obeyed their instructions about how she and her family could be spared. When the Israelites invaded Jericho, what did she do? She obeyed the words she knew in order to enjoy the protection that was promised to her by the representatives of God. Similar parallel to the gospel. I'm believing the words of God committed to me by the representatives of God and I enjoy protection as I obey those words to repent and believe. 
saving faith. The call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is a command. Did you know that? John 3.36, he, this is Jesus, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Belief, reliance, entrusting yourself to the Son of God for the salvation of your soul. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Because saving faith is an obeying Let me heighten your awareness of this, and I want to make a statement that I think is important. Only those who obey the divine instruction to repent and believe will be saved. That's what Jesus is saying. I told you, you need to repent and believe. They came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe. Change your mind, change your direction, rely exclusively on me. That's the gospel of the kingdom. That's the good news. And the command is to, to believe, to repent and believe. And only those who obey the divine instruction to repent and believe will be saved. Hear this. Only those who obey have a faith that saves. This idea that I can be saved by believing in Jesus and do what I want is a damning delusion. The faith that saves, listen, necessarily obeys. It obeys the command to believe and it obeys the one who commands you to believe. Listen to Romans 1.4 where it talks about Jesus who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord through him, listen to Paul, through him Jesus and on behalf of his name we received grace and apostleship to call all those among the Gentiles Okay, so Paul's saying, listen, this one that resurrected from the dead, we're commissioned by him as apostles. And our apostleship is to call all those among the Gentiles, listen to this, to the obedience that comes from faith. Listen to Romans 15, 18, Paul. I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. I'm leading as a commissioned representative messenger of God, Gentiles who don't know God, like Rahab, to repent and believe and to obey by word and by deed. Romans 16, 26. But now the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been made known through the writings of the prophets by the command of the eternal God in order to lead all nations to the obedience that comes from faith. Do you hear it? Real faith results in obedience. Trusting Jesus is an act of obedience. And living for the one trusted in is the way to express the faith that saves. As the Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. Saving faith partners with the purposes of God. She sent them out by another way. Now you you may not know the original language, but the word chosen, sent them out, is an aggressive, urgent action. You've got to go. You've got to go now. You've got to go to the mountains. 
You got to leave by a different way. She was inventive. She was creative. She sent them out thoughtfully and passionately, energetically, not through the door, but through her window, not back to their camp, but to the mountains. She sent them in a different direction. She sent them in a different way. Here's why. Because her faith was working. She was engaged. She was acting. Because real faith acts to receive the messengers of God, believe the message of those messengers, and to protect those messengers in a proactive, purposeful way. Because saving faith is an active faith. Now I'm out of time. And I hate that. But I want to say this to you as a kind of going, parting shot and encouragement to you. Rahab is a profound example of the potential and power of the faith that saves. Because Rahab was the only person in town who believed what she believed. She didn't have the benefit of family and friends. She didn't have the benefit of her culture. If she was found guilty of hosting and promoting the purposes of God and protecting the agents of God, her life would have been lost. She didn't have a big faith. She didn't know a lot at all. She had never heard from a prophet. She'd never written or read any inspired scroll or letter. All she heard was, there's a God who does big things for a, for a people that follow God. And I'm for them. And the profound example of what I'm going to call just a little bit of knowledge. Without any support at all. Rahab makes a faith choice that shows up in real life in a profound way. And Rahab the harlot shows up in the Bible in the divine lineage of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Rahab was the mother of Boaz. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. Boaz was a type of Christ, a noble man, a virtuous man, the grandfather of David. Rahab was a harlot. She was identified as a harlot. Can you imagine? That's the way you're going to be identified the rest of your life. Not the grandmom of David. Not the husband or the mother of Boaz. You know what? If she were here today, I honestly believe she would say, I don't care that you know who I was. I want you to know the God who changed me into what I am. Because I was a pagan. I was a prostitute. And through no strength of my own, my belief and the action that validated my belief, I entered into the greatest redemptive story in all of history. And you know what that is? That's the grace that saves by faith. Can you say amen to that? Rahab, justified work that validates her claim of faith. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of its treasure. And I'm asking, Lord, in Jesus' name, that we would examine ourselves even today. And we would look for the evidence that validates our claims. And Lord, if we're 
beat down and beat up by the reality of who we know we are, may we recognize that there is salvation, deliverance, and rescue. There's transformation, not by our work, but by our confidence in yours. Lord, if any man is in Christ, if any woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. Born from above. Not physically, but spiritually. And Lord, Rahab is an example of a life changed by saving faith. Her work validated it. She became someone memorable and notable, not because of who she was, but who she became by the exercise of her faith. Lord, that's my prayer for us all today. Repent and believe. Obey and trust. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.